Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beers and Careers. I'm Mark Agostinelli, your host. And as always, the podcast is brought to you by the good folks at the Davis Companies, www.daviscos.com. That's D-A-V-I-S-C-O-S.com. Davis specializes in the placement of IT engineering and manufacturing professionals in the United States. And whether you're looking for your next job or you are suffering to find the right talent, Davis can help you out. So check them out there. Uh, today's guest, Kirsten Sataria. I know her as Schmoles, Kirsten Schmoller. Um, good friend from, uh, for, I guess, pretty much since about 2007, 2008. And uh, she, share, she shares her awesome journey of really um, going from uh, an Ivy League degree in food science and parlaying that into um, uh, a job at Unilever right out of school that really became her dream job pretty quickly at Ben and Jerry's, um, which is a place that uh, if you're from the Northeast, you hold near and dear to your heart if you ever get up to Vermont. And uh, we share that experience, how she parlayed that into uh, some work overseas and eventually went out on her own. And she comes from a very entrepreneurial family. And her story, I think, is inspiring on how you can really move from working in the corporate world to really starting your own business and, and how she stayed true to her ethos the entire way through. So she's a great storyteller. We had a ton of fun. Love the conversation. I hope you find it as entertaining and as inspirational as I did. Check it out. You know, it's Tuesday. So in true beers and careers fashion, I'm having a seltzer. I don't know what you're drinking. Having a water. There we go. There we go. And I have eight. You can leave New England, but New England doesn't leave you. So. You in no way. Worcester, the Polar Seltzer Company follows us everywhere. So, uh, Kirsten Satara, thank you for coming on Beers and Careers. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a, uh, it's our pleasure. Um, we usually start. You have a phenomenal uh, non-linear career path, which is what our goal is to document here at Beers and Careers. But I, but before we get into that, I'd love just ask you a few rapid fire questions and, and uh, since we're on beers and careers what is your favorite beer or cocktail i'm a big negroni fan and oh. this summer i've been really into drinking vermouth spritzes really like yeah. not an aperol spritz a vermouth spritz mm-hmm. no way okay yeah, so just a lemon slice some vermouth I'll send you a link to this company that's in Long Island that makes these really cool vermouths and then some seltzer water. They're great. Wow, that sounds del- that sounds refreshing and delicious. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we haven't had that on the podcast, and we haven't had Negroni yet. And I, uh, Greg Laz is a huge Negroni guy. <laughs> and uh, we do, I do uh, love a Negroni from time to time, so I love that. Do you have a favorite curse word? Fuck is definitely yeah. the favorite yeah, curse it's word. Not a, yeah. yeah, I couldn't answer, couldn't answer that for you. <laughs> Um, I'm a schmoller, so yeah, what can exactly, I say? Exactly. Uh, do you, are you into quotes? Do you have any favorite quotes? A million and one. But I can't rapidly think of one. Fine. Fine. When they come back to you, you can let it rip. Well, what? here's one that is the one of the golden rules of growing up in a schmoller household was don't fuck this up. Yes. So, <laughs> There you go. Favorite word Just and favorite quote. All in one, encapsulated. Yeah. Um, what was your first job? 
Uh, babysitting and yeah. then my first sort of sanctioned, well, I'm not even sanctioned, I guess, uh, working in my dad's restaurant in Waterbury, Vermont as a hostess for brunch. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, the original. The original. And also when you're a teenager waking up at 7 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday to go hostess brunch. Yes. Not that cool. Very Yeah. But I, but I can't wait to talk to you about growing up in that entrepreneurial environment, though. That's really, that's really cool. Um, and uh, one more. What is your, because you are a schmoller and, and a Vermonter, so we're, you know, I'm going to put myself in the Vermonter class for a minute. We're weird people. Uh, what would you say in your daily routine? What, what would people find most weird about your daily routine? Probably the music I listen to. Like so, so it ranges anything from a long fish set to a lot of deep house. I would say 80% of what I listen to, I like my day is just focused with a two hour deep house DJ. Set the ministry on. of sound just pumping. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. And I, I, I will admit, I was very excited to have you on the podcast because. A, you're an excellent storyteller, but also I feel like you've had a uh, you've had a really cool, interesting career that like, ha you know, you went to an Ivy League college where you did well. And then you worked for what we thought after college was the coolest company in the world, Ben and Jerry's. And then, you know, you've taken a uh, circuitous route to where you are today, but it's kind of for very sure. like tying back to. You know, there's a lot to unpack in a, in a quick podcast, but can you, like, give people what your role is today and maybe, like, the five-minute overview of – or five – not – don't take five minutes, but just give the Reader's Digest version of, like, that path real quick. Sure. So today I am the co-founder of Doozy Pots, which is a plant-based ice cream company based in Cleveland, Ohio. We were founded in 2019 by myself and my husband, Carl. Um, if I've had a interesting career path, he was a corporate tax lawyer and now he's right. jack of all trades at Juicy Pots, like figuring out how to get a truckload of ice cream from the West Coast to the East Coast. Um, a lot harder than you think it would be. Um, so I back it up, grew up in a family of foodies, restaurateurs, entrepreneurs, um, studied food science. I either wanted to do exercise science or food science. I picked food science, uh, which in theory, sometimes I feel like exercise might have better, better, better than ice cream, but who doesn't love ice cream? Most people don't love exercise. So it's a win-win. Um, I studied food science at Cornell, graduated in 2008, right? As sort of a weird banking recession nightmare. You know how it goes because you graduated yes. the same year. Yes. Um, and started working at Unilever five days after graduation down in New Jersey doing product development for frozen savory meals. So like the Bertoli pasta bags and mm. P.F. Chang's uh, frozen meals. And it was surprising to me because I never really ate frozen meals growing up. Um, but it was a lot of fresh frozen and really opened my eyes in, into what that type of thing could be. Um, mm. After about 18 months in New Jersey, got the kind of job of a lifetime 
developing products at Ben and Jerry's up in Vermont, which was literally and figuratively really fucking sweet. Oh, my um, God. And and being a friend of someone who had a job like yours was <laughs> the best. <laughs> so, I mean, you're allowed to get three free pints of ice cream a day. So, like, people would come over. And oh. that day where we all were at my apartment right after my uncle passed away and I just had like 25 pints of like secret flavors and all the oh. coolest new flavors. That was super fun. That was very cool. Uh, so did ice cream for about nine years, um, went over to London for two different stints to work in the, the UK Global Ice Cream Development Center for Unilever, um, where I created their plant-based line for Ben & Jerry's, happened to be my husband, Carl, who's English, while I was over there. Um, after Ben & Jerry's, worked for a smoothie and juice company called Innocent, which is owned by Coca-Cola. Um, so for the first 10 years of my career, I really worked in like big CPG food companies, um, but they were all kind of values-led brand owned by bigger companies. And that was always my ethos was I would never work for a brand whose product I couldn't eat every single day because that's basically what your job is. Um, Ten years in, decided, all right, it's time to go out on my own and, and be an entrepreneur. So spent a year doing development consulting, and then um, I knew I wanted to start this hemp and oat milk ice cream business. Uh, a year into that, Carl and I moved to Cleveland, and here we are, slang and ice cream, and we're in almost 500 stores in 35 states, and it's just the two of us, which is nuts. That is insane. So backing up, you are in Jersey. You get the job, the dream job of inventing ice cream flavors back in your home state, yeah. right? And then if I'm correct, you told me that you, when I asked you about the whole London thing, I think you said you were literally going to give notice. Yeah. So this was, let's see, end of 2013. I had um, been at Ben and Jerry's for about five years and it was a really small team. And the joke was always like, how do you get a job there? And it's like someone needs to die in their chair because it's just an awesome job yeah. and their retention is great. So I was like, I think I'm I'm ready for something new and ready for something different um, and had interviewed with Keurig Green Mountain, which at that time was like on fire, yes. doing tons of hiring in Vermont. And I thought, OK, this will be a cool opportunity. It's a Wednesday. Um, one of my kind of big VP directors is over from the UK and my manager throws out, well, maybe Kirsten should go to the UK and work on this project for three months. And he's like, if anyone comes over, it's got to be at least six to nine months to make it worth it. And I was like, while I was in that meeting, my phone rang with a recruiter from Keurig being like, here's an updated offer. And I like, you know, it goes to voicemail and I'm like, wait a second. So I basically said like, hey, if you make it happen for me to go to the UK, I'll stay. But I'm just being totally transparent. I was going to quit on Friday. Um, <laughs> fast forward three months and I was packed up four bags and got on a plane to the UK and, and spent about nine months there. And was the reason for looking for something else, literally just the job became most stagnant to you? Yeah, I felt like I was at the point of, I needed personal growth, career development growth, upskilling, a new set of managers. I was just, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a big company and Jerry's is a big company, but it's also a very small company. You're on a team of four or five people. Um, 
and you're like creating new opportunities for yourself, but you realize like, okay, if I'm going to grow in this role, I got to get out of here because I have have to wait for a few other people to retire before any next level comes available. Mm. And why, and you were just ready to roll to the UK. Like for you, that wasn't a big change. I mean, it was a big change, but it wasn't like a hard decision. No, I was like, so the, in 20, early 2013, I had gone over there for two weeks for a work trip, had never okay. been to London, had never been to Europe. And you know, when you go to a place and you kind of walk around and you're like, wow, I love the vibe here. I, like I could see myself living here. This is sweet. Mm. Um, I got that feeling and I was like, I can totally live here. This is cool. Um, and yeah, it kind of came at a good time. I was, it was just me. I really was like at a point in my life where I was like, I need a whole change. I was calling it my seven months of solitude. Yes. Ended up meeting Carl. That's a whole other story. But <laughs> right. Which is wild. Like that, yeah. that's kind of cool that that decision led to your husband. Exactly. So it's one of those things you're like, wow, what if I like stayed in Waterbury and worked and developed right. coffee pots and I don't know, my whole life would be completely different. So like, different. So different. So different. And it's, and look, yeah, no, that's a really cool story. And how long were you there? Just the seven months, eight months, or did you? Uh, almost nine months. Yeah. So I was there okay. from February to November. Wow. Yeah. Sweet. It was awesome. My goal while I was there was to go somewhere different at least once a month. Um, did some cool UK road trips, traveled around Europe, had a great but terrifying experience snowboarding alone in Switzerland. Oh man. Which, like, they got three feet of snow, which was amazing, but you're in German-speaking Switzerland alone, and you're like, okay, this is dangerous. Right, and everything's, uh, from what I have been told, I have not skied in Europe, but what I've been told, things are not well-marked like they are in the States. No, it's like one of those little orange sticks with, like, a little piece of orange wire, and it's like, warning, thousand-foot great glacial crevasse and, like, a skull. It's insane. It's so different. It is so different. Where the U.S., like... They have that on the bunny hill. Yeah, I'm like, uh, this, we're not in stow anymore. That is, that is so funny. So before we get into the doozy pot journey, talk, well, I guess they're kind of related, but like, I forgot until you mentioned in, when we were connecting before, like, or, or in your intro about the hostess at your dad's, uh, restaurant. Like, I, I'm obviously met for background for people listening to the podcast. Uh, I was roommates with Kirsten's. Uh, brother Steve, we played the lacrosse together at, at uh, College of Vermont St. Mike's, and her uncle uh, was the lacrosse coach, who, who like, you know, uh, enough can't be said about that man for any impact he had on my Total life. legend. And, and uh, he's an absolute uh, effing legend. But, so I met your dad when Crop, I believe, was launching in Cleveland, which yeah. was his restaurant, and then he opened one in Vermont that so Steve... He- yeah, so he had a restaurant that they had opened in Waterbury where Hen of the Woods is now. Yes, um, what was it called? Uh, the Mist Grill, M-I-S-T. Yes, right. Yeah. I would and have said the Grist like, Mill, so I was way off, but yes. Well, no, it was at the Grist Mill, but... um. Yeah, yes, all right. I was like, I know something. Like that. It was, I'd say that was like kind of 98, 90, I was in middle school. Yes. Um it was like a dirt floor when they first started renovating it. And I remember like being with him on the weekend, like staining the staircase. Like mm. we were put to work. Yes. Oh, cool. 
Yeah. Well, and like, and like, how long was that open for? I would say probably about five or six years. Yeah. Like it was a pretty impactful part of your childhood. Yeah. I spent a ton of time there. I worked, uh, nights during the week, um, plating desserts and hostessing. And then during the weekend, serving baked goods, making coffee and, and hostessing for, for yeah. brunch and lunch. You were the, like you and your brother were like the first family I had met that had really like run restaurants. And it, I was like the, I remember through the conversations we had together learning like the, the work ethic is so insane. And Paul would joke that it's just German work ethic. <laughs> He's not wrong. And uh, the work ethic, but also um, just the entrepreneurial spirit of it all was just like so nuts to me. Do you feel like you were destined to own your own food company that way? Yeah. So I, I mean, I kind of got it from all sides. So like, with yeah. my dad and he had the restaurants and then my stepdad, Dave, like was in property management yes. and the propane business. And like, you're just kind of surrounded by like, no one had a really traditional job. Per Even se. Nora, right? Even Nora, like she worked in a, in wine sales and, but and was she worked from hustling. home. Always yeah. hustling. Yes. Um, so it was sort of like, I thought I would be at Unilever for a year. It was 2008, and I was like, I don't want to work work for a big global company. This is not my vibe. I'm from Vermont. I want to work for like a cool heady granola company. Yes, yeah. Um, and then we moved to Waterbury when I was uh, almost five from Long Island, and one of the first places we went was Ben and Jerry's, and I remember seeing the QA lab like cutting open with a three foot knife pints of ice cream and I was like that's sweet I want to do that for my job <laughs> like <laughs> basically I don't know 18 years later there I was like creating those flavors chopping them open um and I knew I wanted to do my own thing but I felt like I never really had the confidence to do it um I still don't know if I have the confidence but I'm doing it yeah um and once you begin to realize like Nobody has any idea what they're doing for the most yeah. part. And it's yeah. a game of figuring it out. Then you're good to go. It is. Uh, it is wild. I had a conversation with an intern we have here the other day. And she was like asking for advice and talking. Then I was like, you just got to realize that like legitimately no one knows what they're doing. Yeah. Nobody has any clue and people are playing figure it out. And if you're a good figure outer, like if you're a good person, like find the people who know what they're doing, or at least like have been through it before. And I actually, so the year that I was in London, just consulting, working for myself, I shout out to the BevNet podcast and mm -hmm. how I built this because I listened to hundreds of episodes every single day. I was at home. I was listening to at least one podcast story of a food and beverage entrepreneur and their journey. And the biggest takeaway from that was like, yeah, people are just rolling with it. Mm -hmm. And nobody goes into this knowing everything. And if they think they do, then they're in for like a very rude awakening because it's nuts. That is wild. And I, and you, what else you said really resonated? And I don't know if I heard it on a Tim Ferriss podcast or newsletter or something of that ilk, but he said there's something where they know that uh, generally successful people have the confidence that they're going to succeed and they also doubt their abilities and skills to do it. 
Like both yep. things are true for those people. So when you said like, I still don't really know if I can do it. It's like that really resonated because you, you have confidence because you've done things, but at the same time, you're like, like, man, I can get, better. you also see where you could get better. Yep. And that's the thing is I spend so much time being like, wow, I don't know how to do this. So yes, I'm a food scientist. I'm a product developer. I have my MBA. I am not a social media manager, but I do all of our social media management for doozy pots because there's wow. two people and that's what I need to do. I can't afford to hire Mike Hayes yet. So <laughs> literally, right. And I literally was pulling up with you being like, I have to call Mike because he needs to come on and share how he skis a hundred days a year and uh, runs uh, marketing at, at, or digital marketing at Ben and Jerry's. But do you, do you feel like, like if you were going to encapsulate like your real world experience, your college experience and your, um, uh, let's put like college because I know you got your master's at UVM too. So that whole higher ed thing, plus like just your family growing up business experience. Like, is there one of those three you leverage more so day to day in running your business today? Like in terms of like your gut guiding light kind of thing? I would say it's like pretty equal mix of all of them. I mean, I talk to my parents to be like, Hey, what do I do here? Like, yes. and talking through that, like, okay, you know, fear or failure, just keep going. Dave and my, my dad, Steve are, are total hype men on that. Um, I lean on my food science experience to understand the legal side of food production, the food engineering piece, the recipe development piece, the science of ice cream. Like I'm always going back to that. And then um, just my real world experience from being in a big company and like knowing how to scale. Uh, I think a lot of people start a food business, oftentimes coming from a very different world that's not food. Um, but I've seen the inner workings of, of brands that are owned by massive global companies. And you're like, you know what? You can't be too precious about things because this is a numbers game. It's a money game. Yeah. Um, and you've got to look at it from that perspective. Um, so it's depends on the day, depends what I need to yeah. lean on. Um, there are some days where I'm like, I've never really loved finance, even in grad, like my undergrad, I had a focus in business and then I did grad school in business. And I'm like, man, I wish I cared more about finance because I could really use that right now. <laughs> you have like a, like, so it's just you and Carl, like where, well, and why is Carl the tax accountant not doing your uh, finances, by the way? He must be doing he all is. of them. Yeah. It's, it's a group effort, but I'm like, you know, one of the most important things you should understand as a business number, a business owner is your numbers. Oh, that is so true. Do you have like, as you scale, like what's next in terms of adding people and that kind of thing? Do you think about it in terms of that, like with an end game in mind or are you just. Yeah. So our, um, in sort of packaged retail food products, um, there's an annual review season, which we're coming up on. So you work with the retailers that you're in. They review the category and say, here are the trends we're seeing. Here's what we need. Here's your performance. Like you're in for another year. Um, so we're going through that process right now. And um, all things going well, we get reset. And I think now that we're three, three years plus into this business, um, we're ready to probably raise some money and be able to build out some more st structure with the team, um, be able to put some more money behind marketing. And um, we really wanted to sort of 
get proof of concept in market before we went and raised. The last couple of years have been a little bit wild west for, for food fundraising. I think that's cooling off a little bit, but you were seeing people raise like, you know, 40, 50, 60 million dollars off the back of like under 5 million in revenue, which is crazy. Um, we're not trying to do that, but we're at that point where we've bootstrapped for three years and it's like, great, we've got to get to the next level and that's going to require some funding help and some people help. That, very cool. Art, can you share how um, big you've grown the organization to today? Uh, yeah, so we are, say this year, we'll probably crest like half a million in revenue. Yeah, sick. And how many stores is, are you in? Uh, close to 500. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that is that is so awesome. And has has the mission like changed at all or evolved throughout that three and a half years? So my initial thing, I was really, really bullish on hemp as a food ingredient. And I yes. still am. I still really believe in it as a crop. And um, it wasn't legal to grow until about four years ago. Um which, and that's like an old timey law because they wanted paper to right. It was a yep, competitor exactly. against paper. Yeah. Yep. And they they use this sort of marijuana piece to be like yes. this outlaw all hemp and, to demonize it, which is how yep. marijuana got a really bad name back in like is this in like the 1800s or is it the early? No, 1900s? this was like the 20s ish. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Cool. So I mean, hemp can make paper, fiber, cloth, yes. food, oil for petrol. And it it can make grows building really materials. fast, right? Yep. So yeah. it, it requires less input. It's actually better than um, trees for paper. And there's a million uses for it. And it's sort of just been like stuffed in the corner. And from a food perspective, incredibly high in protein um, by weight. It's also got a really healthy fat profile. It's got a lot of fiber. And I was like, why is no one using this? And then I realized, like, because it's been illegal. Um, so that's been something I've really been championing. But we've hit a lot of roadblocks and just things that get in the way. Like you're not allowed to say the word hemp in a Facebook advertisement for a food product. They really? say like you get a warning. It's like, this is a class a you're stop trying to sell heroin on Facebook. And I'm like, it's ice cream. Um, they're wow. aware of it. They won't do anything about it. So we've, we haven't shifted away from hemp, but we shifted away from hemp as our primary message. Um, yes. Our primary primary message is plant-based, better for you, better for the planet. And, and here's an opportunity to have plant-based products that feel like you're not compromising. And they're also made with organic regenerative ingredients. And we're really just trying to like do things better because to be honest, the world feels like a little bit of a hellscape right now. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. The news cycle is certainly not helping. No. Has has it been challenging to, like, you're not making the ice cream in your own factory, right? You're using We were. Yeah, so we're using a co-packer now. Yeah. Um, our first 10,000 cups were by hand, which honestly, I don't know how my dad did it because oh, I had to. Oh, your forearms. <laughs> so jacked. Um, I did, like. I don't know, 400 pints over two days last week. And honestly, I was like, I have carpal tunnel and oh my, my hands stuck in a claw. Oh my goodness. Especially like, like I've obviously had the pleasure of stopping and going to the Ben and Jerry's factory with my children, yep. which I think I was the biggest kid there. But like when you see how ridiculously automated 
and incredible that machinery is. And then to think that you're bootstrapping it, like that's not easy. That's not easy work. Like just taking out ice cream and scooping it in a cone for your kids at night sucks. Yes. <laughs> no, it's so my dad, there was a point where we were like trying to fill big orders and he was doing 500 pints a day, which is two big eight ounce scoops, like a, a mashed potato scooper. So yeah. He was doing like a thousand scoops. I did a 250 the other day and I, my arm was like dead. I don't know how he, he's, he's a drummer and he's a chef. So he's a different. Yeah. I was going to say hard. He's got, he's got certainly got that working for him, but it has it been hard to like keep any of the standards around like your plant-based and product with co-packing or is it, it's that really not been a challenge? Um, hasn't been a challenge because I developed our recipe from day one with like fully commercially scaled ingredients. So a lot of food companies Brilliant. might start in someone's kitchen and they're buying ingredients at Whole Foods and to get that recipe from like a Whole Foods at home recipe to you're making 10,000 pints in a day, you're going to have to find new suppliers and go through that whole thing, which is what I work in consulting work. I do a lot with is like work with small companies to help them find a co-packer scale up and really understand like your product today will be different than it is in six months. And it'll be different than it is in 12 months, but like start your recipe development with scale in mind. If yeah. that's your, your kind of end goal. So on the whole, um, it's pretty much stayed the same. It's a little bit sometimes more um, more consistent because you're not like dependent on your dad's scooping points or like hand measuring yes. things. Um, and on the whole, it's, it's been pretty good. And we've we've really worked to I go into the co-packer and I'm like hawk-eyed there. Like, is this right? Here are the right. settings. So I can only imagine the OCD <laughs> of that walkthrough. <laughs> did you um you mentioned the goal would be to raise some capital like do you also think about it from an end game in mind like are you trying to sell to a unilever or are you more like no i just want to get this in every state or something of that effect um i don't live every day with the goal of acquisition in mind yeah i think it would be great um i think the ice cream category is incredibly challenging if you're not at massive scale. Um, The category is dominated by two to three major players um, who have locks on uh, sort of slotting in stores, distribution, trucking, warehousing. Um, It's hard. It's hard to be a small business in this category. Direct to consumer online is not really a, a great viable option. Um, we yeah. are sort of better for the planet and, and we're really, I, you know, if you think of Ben and Jerry's as like old school, mission led, fair trade, non-GMO, they're doing a ton, but we're like organic, regenerative. Um, so we, we're playing the long game on this because we really, you know, believe in what we're doing. But you also see companies like Unilever, Danone, General Mills, um, turning an eye to organic and regenerative. And, mm-hmm practices on the back end like okay we maybe can't keep up with conventional agriculture so maybe one day yeah i well it's it's interesting because i i just recorded a podcast last week with another um awesome female entrepreneur named vanessa white who started a pierogi company like kind of on a whim because 
her parents would bring pierogies and her college friends would be like, where did you get those? And she's like, I'm going to make them one day. And so she did. But in our conversation and hers, I, I have been floored at how like in the grocery store game, if that's your distribution model, like really how rigged the system is for the big guys. Like it's like even oh, just yeah. your, com- your statement being like, well, it's like, it's almost like you're up for your performance evaluation. Again, and I know that happens in, like, a number of lines of business, but, like, the fact of the matter is usually it happens when you hit some level of critical mass, which you you clearly have. It's just, like, is that the most nerve-wracking and frustrating part of it as, like, someone who certainly identifies with the small business and entrepreneur, like, both family and from where you're from? That's, like, those are values that are just so strong. Like, like how is that navigating that, like, shithole, Ben? Because it sounds like a shithole. It is, I read, uh, someone shared on LinkedIn yesterday, and this is like, this shit happens all the time. Um, they have a snack company. They had agreed with the category buyer, um, at a specific retailer that they were going to make an exclusive flavor for them. So they produce, they send everything to the distributor. It's in the warehouse and they can see it's not being pulled from the warehouse for like a month. So they're emailing the buyer, emailing the buyer. And then they get an email from a new buyer and they're like, yeah, we decided not to to move forward with that. Like, that's not happening. So, like, somewhere there's pallets full of product that someone agreed on. So, and, like, that is how ruthless. And they didn't get purchased. Those aren't purchased. They're just yeah, they're sent. Just, yeah. So they're not going to go into the store, which and, you know, there's there's a lot of layers. So I make the product. I sell the product to the distributor. They want a margin. And then the distributor sells it to a retailer. They get a margin. So when you see a pint for $6.99, $7.99 on shelf, like I'm not getting that. I'm selling that pint for $3.50. Right. Um, right. So ah. it's hard. It's ruthless. Um, there are some companies and distributors and retailers that are working to change it, but like there's not really any incentive to um change it because the big guys slotting fees luckily we work with retailers who right now don't have slotting fees but if we wanted to go to a conventional like some retailers have between 10 and twenty thousand dollars for one skew per year to say you've got that soda or chip or whatever on shelf that is insane yeah so so you're so the business model really to make money in like your category to a degree is scale. Yeah. Because it's low margin. Yep. It is not. So I was working. Well, even with, if it's not low margin, it's low dollar amounts too. Yep. Like even if you're at a 50% margin, it's still 300. It's still what? A couple bucks a pint. You're not. Yeah. Interesting. I, was, I mean, which makes sense. Like it's not like you need an MBA to figure that out, but it is, it is like interesting how quickly it becomes like a passion project to like, well, if we're going to make this make money, we, you, you're forced to scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was working with a, a, a client a couple of years ago to develop um, an ice cream with them. And one of the woman's husbands is in like big private equity. And we were sitting at the table and we were talking numbers. And he looks at me and he goes, you got to sell a lot of fucking ice cream to make a million dollars. A lot. And I was like. Yeah, especially if you're talking million dollars profit. We're not even talking million dollars revenue. Like if right. you want to get a profit of a million and this person is dealing in like right. 
airline private equity. <laughs> so different numbers. Yeah, different. I was like different, different numbers here, but that was probably one of the best ways to sum up like the CPG, especially yeah. the ice cream industry. Like you got to sell a lot to make that million dollars. Yeah, that makes sense. And like, I don't, I don't wish for you to like sell it to get rid of it, but you also seem like the type of person where like you have other things that you're going to make impacts on the food world beyond doozy pots, you know, like you're just, I have like a million ideas. I know there are ideas. You probably have an idea notebook for all I know, you know, 110%. The ideas that come out, there's like probably five ideas a week. That's, that's low ball. Um, but my thing is like, and this is one thing that I've learned as an entrepreneur. Like I do really like being, um, a brand owner, but there's also a lot of stuff I've learned what I don't like doing. Um, I am not the type of person who likes to write purchase orders or track that an order has gotten on a truck and is on the way somewhere. Like that type of work isn't for me. I'm a creative person. Someone wants to just pay me for my ideas. Let's chat. Yeah. um, You know, but you being in the trenches and doing the stuff that you hate doing, like there are nights I'm in a freezer warehouse at 11 p.m. packing pallets or washing dishes. I'm like, are those cool jobs? No, but you've got to do them. And and being in the trenches from day one is really what builds character. Oh, my gosh, for sure. Do you find like. Where do you find inspiration or or probably a better way of saying is where do you find the motivation when when it wanes when you're doing the shitty jobs? You literally have no choice because there's yeah. no one else to do it. So it's like if I don't pull myself up by the bootstrap personal pride and just like get yeah. in there and get through this. Nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have friends that say, like, I don't know how you get up every day and like. You work for yourself. There's no telling you what to do. It's like, well, when you're in charge of make it or break it. Yes. It's almost like you're a you're fueled by passion, but you're also a little bit fueled by like fear of failure. Fuel and letting fear. people down depending on you. Yeah. yeah. Even though they don't work for you, but they're aware of your brand and you're associated with that brand. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be that has got to be nerve wracking. Do you have like a plan of like what jobs you'll immediately outsource if you were to raise capital or are you going to be like, no, step back, bring someone in to help me choose the order? Um, a little bit of both. I, we need to build brand awareness. That's something we're very yeah. aware of. Um, I would love to be able to, and it's going to, it's not necessarily going to be a full-time person. It's going to be some sort of outsourced, um, like fractional people to come help us, or it might be an agency that we can work with, but definitely getting social media marketing to people who have deep expertise in that. Cause it's like, you're like, Oh, I have Instagram. I can figure this out. No, it is so much work. And it also is a lot of creative work, which I, I love creating content, whether it's recipes or fun mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but it's hard to find the time for that and those creative juices when you're like deep in trying to figure out how to make 50,000 pints of ice cream. Did you like take, like, do you, when was the last time you had like a legit vacation? Um, we went to Spain in the end of May for a friend's wedding. I wouldn't say that. There were many days I didn't work while we were there. Yeah. 
Um, I would love to take like four or five days where my computer's not there. My phone's not there. Um, it was great, but it was not full vacation mode. It's not the reality of the situation today. Yeah. I would probably say my last like real, real, real vacation was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Interesting. And do you like, if you were, if there are people listening, cause like the whole goal for this was documenting how people are kind of like, and I think you're a perfect example of someone who like, although you didn't know what you wanted to do all the way through, I kind of feel like if we were watching a movie about you, we would have predicted this to a degree, but like, did you need a shitload of your own personal capital to launch this? Like, is it, is it, if you're giving advice to people who are at high school or college and they've got good creative ideas, but they need to execute on them, like, how feasible is it? You know? Um, we definitely invested a lot of our own money. Um, it's possible to do it with less for sure. Um, we kind of right out of the gate went from like doing a couple small markets to being in 30 stores with that view on scale. Cause I came from a place of like factory that made 250 pints a minute. Um, right. so I knew what I wanted to do, but honestly, where there's a will, there's a way, yeah. um, there's nothing wrong with starting in markets. And honestly, like a journey starts with one step, two yeah. steps. Um, and really just taking the time for like proof of concept. So if you have an idea, give it a try. I've got a couple other ideas that we're working on that I'll like share at a market. I'm working on some like hemp heart sprinkles and I'll sell those at a market. Um, and it's kind of low investment, but allows us to test things and, and see how consumers react to them. So honestly, like as a kid, my first, well, my first entrepreneurial venture was selling friendship bracelets in um, the lobby of the woolen mill in Winooski when my dad lived there for like 50 cents. And I would, Stevie and I sat on the floor and we're like making them and I'd be like, do you want to buy a friendship bracelet? And I loved that. Like I had a shoebox full of bracelets that I was selling. And my dad was like, I'm going to teach you on this piece of paper, how to spell entrepreneurship. And you're going to be an entrepreneur. And go yeah. Downstairs. I, it makes sense. It and makes sense. Them. I'm pretty sure he was just like, get out of here and go yeah. do something. Please leave. Please leave my home. Yeah. <laughs> Child. Um, that's really awesome. Uh, your, your story is phenomenal. I only wish the best for you and Carl. Uh, and I can't wait to see you when you're, when you're in the Northeast or I'm out in Ohio. But before I let you go, what is your favorite non, uh, Ben and Jerry's or Doozy Pot ice cream? Because I have one deep. Oh. Hmm. I mean, does it have to be one specific flavor or can it be like no, something? No, you can give me a brand. Yeah. I really like mochi. So those oh, little. I don't know like, that. Um, if you have a Hannaford's by you, I think yes, Hannaford yeah, has the, right the Yasso <laughs> mochi. Okay. Um, God, so those you like are bomb. Damn. And All right. a non ben well, so I grew up, I truthfully don't eat or buy that much ice cream anymore. I would, I would guess you're <laughs> so sick of it. <laughs> um, but I grew up eating Turkey Hill mint Dude. chocolate chip Dude. 
at my grandma's house, Grandma B's house in Long Island, like sitting by the pool. And that just holds like so many good memories. Can't tell you the last time I had it, but yes. that was like probably cemented my love for Ben or for yes. ice cream in general. That's like, that's been it for me now. Now with like, if I grocery shop and my children happen to be around and I'm like not avoiding buying like bomb pops or like Snickers bars and ice cream or something with like a weird uh, cartoon animal on it, Turkey Hill, any Turkey Hill. And a shout out to Mike Borma. When we were in college and we, like, we couldn't get our hands on Ben and Jerry's, he's like, this is the stuff my family eats. <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, and he's so right. Like I still like text some pictures of him. Like this is the best ice cream. Other than Ben and Jerry's, I think so. Uh, 110%. Yeah, we have you had the kind frozen bars? No. So they have a peanut or peanut butter one. It's like a better for you frozen Snickers bar. They're so good. Oh, oh, I will absolutely check that out. That's probably like my current buy if I'm eating a frozen treat is those peanut kind frozen bars. I'm such, a, I'm such a sucker for peanut too. Ice cream. And what is your favorite uh, Ben and Jerry's flavor? Since you, you know, you kind of invented them and shit. Uh, who? Well, in non-dairy, there was a um, salted caramel almond brittle flavor, and the peanut yes. butter and cookies non-dairy one. And then, OG fan of like chubby hubby and mint yeah, chocolate yeah. cookie. I still don't understand how Cherry Garcia gets sold. <laughs> I'm a huge Cherry Garcia fan, but I've never seen anyone buy it in line ever, ever. Like, and then when they release their top selling flavors, I'm like, this is all lies. I'm gonna have Mike Hayes on to certainly discuss, but yeah, I got really into those ones with the cores, the caramel core, whatever that one was, caramel sutra, I think it was. Yep, that's a real problem for me. (laughs) Um, But I really doozy pots to the East Coast, dude. Seriously. Is it harder because of the retail structure of the grocers here? Is that um, the issue? No. So we launched with Sprouts. They're mostly on the West Coast. So most of our um, distribution is on the West Coast. We actually just opened up an East Coast distributor down in oh. Maryland, which should allow us to open up into more retailers on the East Coast. Um, so hopefully next year we'll be able to start rolling awesome. into I can't wait. I will certainly buy some. I feel like of all of the – uh, demographics to buy into plant-based northeast probably one of your harder ones huh? just old rigid traditional people <laughs> yeah unless you're, you're in vermont where everyone's like i was true, just looking true. At- i mean like boston new york when i say yeah. that in true and florida right like the whole east coast you're just apt but yeah. like in the west coast like oh, i'll try something new <laughs> yep uh well, i will say the midwest like when we first started demoing out here people would be like if it's not dairy then what is it really Oh, yeah, because it's such a, oh, my goodness, yes. Yep. Have you found that, like, because you lived in Europe, do you feel a greater appreciation for how different places are in the U.S. than ever? Oh, yeah. Like, getting out of the U.S., getting out of the country, like, I didn't really start traveling around the world until I was 27, 26. Um, And in that time, I've gone to, like, Thailand and India and Japan and around yeah. Europe and you're just like whoa right it gives you so much more appreciation for like yeah I remember I told my stepdad 
he grew up in Vermont. I, I was like, uh, yeah, they don't have pickup trucks in England or really in Europe. They have like these little scooter van yeah. things. Utes, they have utes, right? Because <laughs> the roads are like a path yes. in between two buildings. He was like, what do you mean they don't have pickup trucks there? I was like, not everywhere is just like giant, like America. <laughs> right, it's <laughs> so true. And then I feel like when you're having conversations with people outside of the US and they're like stereotyping an American, you're like, yes, that's correct in this part of the country. You know, mm-hmm. it's a wild, it's a wild thing. It's funny how many people I talked to on this podcast that share a similar journey of like all of the things that throughout their life have kind of helped them for where they are today. And they're still kind of figuring it out as they go. But the amount of people that travel, not for perspective, they travel because they like to travel, but they really, the thing they take the most out of is, is the perspective of it. It's, yeah. a, it's, re- it's a really interesting thing. It's like, dude, if you're listening to this podcast and you can rub two dimes together, buy a bus Leave. ticket somewhere. Like, Get out of here. Like, especially when you're young because it gets hard. So Also, please, for the 50% of people that don't have them, go get a passport. Yeah, so true. Get out of it. Get out. It's a, it's, it's great perspective. Uh, Kirsten, you rule. This Thank is you great. For, Thank, Thank you so you very much. much. You're the best. This will, will, When this launches, we'll certainly uh, we'll tag you and do all the social stuff to help out with doozy pots. And, and if some make it in the mail here, I'll send an address. If you need any testers, you know, I'm always I would always be open. more than happy to uh, to send always some open. eastward. Doesn't sound like you have enough going on, so I'm sure I can just add <laughs> But thank you again. Say hi to Carl and Godspeed. Thanks so much. Bye, Mark.